0: This is your Professor Debbie. Welcome to True Crime University, where we have intellectual discussions about crime. This is a class for mature audiences with mature language and subject matter. Our purpose is to learn about criminals, not glorify them, and my aim, as always, is education. Hello, class. How's everybody today? When we left off last week, it was the night of April 17th, 2013, and Autumn had just gotten home from working at the hospital all day. There are varied accounts of what happened next, but here's what we know for sure. Soon after arriving home, Autumn collapsed on the floor of her kitchen. In some versions, Bob says she was holding her head in her hands, and in some versions he said that she said that she wasn't feeling good. Bob then called 911, and I have a little snippet of that conversation here. And if you listen carefully, you can hear Autumn moaning in the background. I'm going to ask you have her, ask a couple
1: questions, okay? So just hang on. They're already on the way as so I'm, I'm talking to you. Once you to get close enough to ask her three questions, okay, and tell me when you're ready. Okay. Ask, ask, okay, ask her to smile. A smile, sweetie. Well, she's just looking. She's staring. Hey, was a smile equal on... No, you? She's um, No, she's glinting. Okay, that's fine. Okay, listen. Was a smile equal on both sides of her mouth? Mm-hmm. Yes, Yes, yes. the whole face is flaccid, except for these big white okay, eyes. So was it a normal smile? Or was it off to one side? No, no, no smile. No, 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 no.
2: She's not smiling.
0: Bob told the operator he thinks his wife is having a stroke. And you hear the operator telling him to ask her to smile. And if somebody is having a stroke, the muscles of their face will usually be lopsided. That's why he tells Bob, have her smile and tell me if the smile is equal or if it's she's just smiling on one side of her face. Then he tells the dispatcher that he wants her taken to UPMC Shadyside which is strange because, first of all, the dispatcher has nothing to do with where she's going to go. And it's also strange because this particular hospital is 1.1 mile from their house, whereas Presby, where Autumn just came from, is only half a mile. And it also has a level one trauma center, which Shady Shadyside doesn't. And surely Bob would have known that. 12 minutes later... An EMT and a medic come into the kitchen to find Autumn on the floor unresponsive. According to Bob, she suddenly collapsed after saying she had a headache. And their names are Steve and Jared. Steve would later say that he noticed a big Ziploc bag of white powder on the counter, which Bob said was creatine. At the trial, Jared, who was the medic... Testify that her blood pressure and pulse were adequate at first, but a few minutes later, quote, started to tank. She went from breathing normally to breathing very fast. And Jared said, quote, that signifies something seriously neurological is going on, whether it is a stroke or a head bleed. At this point, I knew that it is time to go, end quote. And in EMS lingo, when you're at a scene with a patient, you have two options to do. They're called stay and play, which means the person doesn't seem to be in any immediate danger. You can stay for a while, check their vitals, maybe get a little bit medical history, try to find out some more about what's going on. The other option is called either load and go or shit and get which means the person's going, another term we use, it's not very nice, going down the shitter, which unfortunately Autumn was, and you got to hurry up and get him on the ambulance. Jared said that she was crashing. Her pulse and blood pressure were rapidly declining. So they race the half mile to Presby. They didn't have time to do anything but start an IV. And there's a photo that I have on my Instagram. It's from the one of the many security cameras there of her being pushed into the ER at 1221 a.m. an hour after she left. If you can tell, I know the image is kind of blurry, but her head is kind of contorted. It's kind of twisted up. So they rush her to a treatment area and they're met by emergency resident Dr. Andrew Farkas. And he's gonna be her main doctor from now on. He noted that her eyes were glassy, she was struggling to breathe, which is what we call respiratory distress. She was taking shallow breaths. Her heart rate was in the low forties, and what it should be is like anywhere between sixty and hundred. Her blood pressure was forty eight over thirty-six. And average is like one twenty over eighty. The only kind of response that she's giving is her pupils are reactive and what that means you know how a doctor or nurse or somebody shines the light in your eye what they're checking for is to see that your pupils react equally when you shine a light in your eye your pupils are supposed to constrict if they don't or if one constricts and the other one doesn't there's something wrong with your brain So we got nurses, techs, everybody rushing around trying to help Autumn. At some point, they realized that it's one of their own doctors. So everybody's like, oh, shit. They put in another IV trying to raise her blood pressure. Her respirations are now four, four breaths per minute. They're supposed to be 16, which means she's breathing at one quarter of the rate at which she should be. They put her on a ventilator because she can't breathe for herself adequately at this point. And at this point, the doctors notice that her pupils are now what we call blown, which means they're no longer reacting to light. And Autumn was so skinny, she was 5'7 and weighed 107 pounds. They were having trouble getting blood out of her arm. So they tried her femoral artery, you know, the one in the leg. That didn't work. Eventually, they got it it out of her jugular vein, which is in her neck, using ultrasound. And write this down or remember it because it's very, very important. When the blood came out, they were shocked to notice that it was bright neon red, which Venus blood is like a, a darker, almost a brownish. I'm sure if you've had blood taken, they take it from a vein and you can think of, of the color. Well, this was like a neon sign. And they're like, um, something's not right. Did we hit an artery? And then they realize, no, this is from her vein. What the fuck is this all about here? So Bob's standing there with the friend who brought him to the hospital. And he's talking to different people, and somebody overheard him say, quote, she really enjoyed what she was doing. She loved her job, end quote. Notice that he's talking about her in the past tense. Well, this did not go unnoticed. The doctor suspected a brain hemorrhage due to her symptoms, but to diagnosis, they needed to do a CT scan, but Autumn was too unstable to move to the CT. So what they did was a Dr. Martin pulled on a a protective vest and actually went in the scan with her. And what he did was he kept pushing epinephrine or also known as adrenaline into her every one to two minutes just to keep her heart going. So the CT comes back and it's clear there's nothing wrong with her brain. And they're like, what? All the other tests that they've done have come up empty, nothing wrong. So they call an intensivist. This is a person or a doctor who works with intensive care patients. Her name was Dr. Lori Shutter. And she knew Autumn. And she later made the exact quote, what the fuck could have happened to Autumn, end quote. Now, there was a neurologist, a cardiologist, and this intensive care doctor. They're all buzzing around Autumn trying to figure out what's wrong with her. Nobody has any answers yet. They get the lab information back from her strange-looking bright red blood, and there were a couple things that were strange about the blood. The pH level of it was high. There was a lot of acid in her blood, which... Nobody could explain, but it is indicative of a severe metabolic dysfunction. And her oxygen level in her blood was in the 500s, more than twice normal. What that means is her cells are unable to use oxygen. Like the oxygen is going around, picture it kind of knocking on the doors of the cells saying, hey, Because our cells need oxygen, all of them, in order to live. The oxygen is running around her body, knocking on the door of the cells, saying, hey, let me in. Um, Oxygen, you need me. And the cells are saying, get lost. So we have all this random oxygen floating around in her blood, which should not be. So Dr. Shutter suggests a tox screen for, quote, standard set of drugs and poisons. At 2.17 a.m., Autumn lost her pulse and arrested, which means flatline, like you're basically dead. They took turns doing CPR, the chest compressions, for 22 minutes, which is a really long time to do CPR on somebody. They had just decided that they were going to call it, meaning declare her dead, when all of a sudden they noticed that she had a pulse. Very slow, but it was there she was still not conscious or responsive. So a cardiothoracic surgeon and his fellow come down and this part is going to be important. So bear with me. I'm going to try to explain in as simple language as I can what this machine does. They decide to put her on what they call an ECMO machine. That's ECMO. That stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. It's basically a type of dialysis, similar to a heart-lung machine, and it takes the blood from the body, removes the carbon monoxide, kind of cleans it, puts oxygen in it, and then returns it to the body. And Autumn is so tiny that the tubes for this machine were almost too big for her little blood vessels. There was no time to go to the OR for this so they called this emergency ECMO team and they brought all their equipment down. Now her heart rate was 60 to 70 which is acceptable. So everybody kind of relaxes for a while and they try to figure out what in the world is going on here. At 5:30 a.m. they moved her to the CT ICU which is the cardiothoracic ICU. Somebody takes an EEG, and that is the electroencephalograph. That's when they measure your brain waves. And very sadly, there was no activity, which means her brain was not doing anything at all. At 8.20 in the morning, she was evaluated by a consultant who noted that her blood pressure was 70 to 30. Her pupils were still non-responsive. She had no gag reflex, no response to painful stimuli. And he said that her chance of a meaningful recovery were less than 4%. So a doctor, I, I know there's so many doctors here, but you don't you would have to remember them or anything. Dr. Rittenberger, who was on the post-cardiac arrest team, described her symptoms to one of his colleagues who worked in, in the ER. And he mentioned this bright red blood and how unusual it was and that it was also acidic. So this colleague, his name was Dr. Calloway, he said, why don't you test for cyanide toxicity? So they're like, well, (laughs) it's not going to hurt. We don't know what else is going on. So that afternoon, they drew some blood from her and they sent it to Quest Lab in Virginia. Remember that? Quest Lab. By this time, Autumn's parents and stepdaughter Kim were here. And her mother said that, as soon as she saw autumn in the state she was with all the tubes and everything in her, she said quote, "I knew she was gone." Lois and Bill were aggravated because Bob wouldn't include them in discussions with the doctors, and he was going around telling Bob was going, going around telling several people that he thought she had had in quote Electrical brain surge. So what is an electrical brain surge? It is an actual thing. It's also called brain zaps or shocks. And it feels like electrical jolts in your head caused by anxiety. And often people have them when they're having a panic attack. That's what a brain surge is. And, and now, okay, this keeps getting weirder and weirder. It's like an episode of... Gray's Anatomy or ER or something. Bob says that he doesn't want an autopsy done on Autumn. And he was so insistent about this that people were actually suspicious. And they actually noted this in her chart. In Pennsylvania, any unnatural death has to have an, an autopsy, it's the law. On the third day, there was no change and Autumn was declared brain dead and pronounced dead at 12.31 p.m. on April 20th. The next morning, her body arrived at the medical examiner's office, and her autopsy was done by Dr. Todd Lukasevic. The only thing he really noticed was she had a little ladybug tattoo on her ankle, and Autumn had always loved ladybugs. They were like her symbol. He said, On her death certificate, that the cause and manner of death were undetermined, and he sent her to the funeral home. Later that day, this Dr. Martin saw the resident Dr. Farkas. Remember, that was Autumn's initial doctor. And he said, Look at this. It was the lab result from Quest, and it said that there was cyanide in Autumn's blood 3.4 milligrams per liter, to be exact. And anything over three is usually fatal. They tried to get her back, but unfortunately, she'd already been cremated. So, Lukasavik learned of this, and he told the lab techs to run their own test for cyanide, and he called the Pittsburgh police. This call was answered by longtime homicide detective Jim McGee, who I'm sure I've talked to in the past. The name sounds really familiar. And his partner, Bob Provident. With Pittsburgh homicide and Allegheny County detectives, they all work in pairs. And these two happen to catch this case. They talk to Dr. Sevick, get some medical information and stuff on Autumn. Then they go to talk to Bob at his house. He was polite and cooperative, answered their questions, and offered them drinks, you know, polite host. Listen to what he told them. He said that he greeted Autumn at the back door in the kitchen, and soon afterward, she said that she felt ill, and he called 911. Detective McGee said, did she ever talk about suicide? Which is a question that you've got to ask in these cases. So Bob gave a very mysterious and bizarre reply. Quote, Autumn once said, she's glad she lives in Pittsburgh because there's a lot of bridges, and the detectives look at each other like, What the fuck? Pittsburgh, by the way, is known for all its bridges. There are a total of 446, and it's because it's built on the convergence of three rivers. There was a joke when I was working. It's like, how many bridges do you cross a day going to and from work? So the detectives informed Bob that Autumn's cause of death was a fatal dose of cyanide. And he gasps and covers his mouth with, with his hand, and he said, quote, Why would she do this to herself? Who would do this to her? End quote. The prosecutor of this case is somebody that I have worked with, and she's a tough prosecutor. She's really cool, and if anything ever happened to me, I would definitely want her fighting for me. Her name is Lisa Pellegrini, and she said to her team, quote, You're not going to believe this, but we think we have a cyanide murder. The prosecution team starts getting warrants, and there were going to be 100 of them in total. That night, they went to Bob's house to serve a search warrant there. The house was empty, so they climb in. Well, one of the cops climbs in through the window, lets the other ones in. So Bob comes home with his sister and Sienna. He's still Mr. Polite Host, offers everybody drinks. Would you like a drink while you tear my house apart? But he also called his attorney. And this part, this keeps getting weirder. This dude is very, very strange. Bob and Detective Provident were talking outside. And it's spring, April. And Detective Providence sneezing. And he notices that he's near a lilac bush, which are very beautiful. And I love the smell of them. Unfortunately... Provident was allergic to them. And he said, do you mind if we move? That stuff's killing me. And Bob asked Provident where he was from. Provident said, why? And Bob said, quote, because if that stuff is killing you, I'll send you some." end quote. And they're like, what is wrong with this dude? They thought that was a very strange joke to make especially from a guy whose house is being searched by the police in the homicide investigation of his wife. And they also noticed, because they're detectives, they noticed that everything he said was calculated, like he always wanted to be in control of everything. The next day, they, they search more things. They search Autumn's office, Bob's office at the VA Medical Center, which I didn't know he had one and Bob's office at Scaife Hall at Pitt. And on Bob's desk, they find a receipt for overnight delivery of one bottle of potassium cyanide totaling 163 94 They later learn, and this is going to come up later, this bottle of cyanide should have been under the desk of a doctor named Dr. Kim, but they found it in the refrigerator. It was a 250-gram bottle. Its seal was broken and 8.3 grams, or 1.66 teaspoons, were missing. They took it to the crime lab, along with computers, glass vials, and creatine. The detectives talk to Autumn's friends, and they all say she would never kill herself. Her career is on the rise. She loves being a mother. She loves Cece. And in Bob's home office, they find a shredder, and they're like, hmm. They dig through the uh, the bucket, you know, that catches all the, I guess, shredded paper. They find a shit ton of paper in there and they take it with them. And another interesting thing to note is the team that searched the house is headed by a female detective and she happens to have two male detectives with her. Even though the female is the lead detective, Bob always addresses everything to the dudes. Because, as I'm sure we know by now, he is a male chauvinist. His attorney was Bill Diffenderfer, and he's practiced law in Pittsburgh for over 30 years. He likes high-profile cases like this one was. Bob told him he was going to take Sienna and move to St. Augustine, Florida, with his sister. So Lisa Pellegrini gives her interns all this shredded paper. She's like, go to it. They work in the grand jury room, and it was like a giant, annoying jigsaw puzzle, trying to put all these strips of paper together. Can you imagine? I have a headache just thinking about it. But they did. They worked diligently. And what they found is that they were printed letters. There was one to Diane, who's Bob's sister. There's one to Kim, his daughter, Michael, his son, and one for... Sienna, and they're too long to read to you, but basically they were goodbye letters, and it looked like Bob had planned to kill himself, and these were like the uh, the suicide letters, if you will. He does say, I have a couple words from and I'll read to you, quote, I no longer have the strength to carry the weight of losing her. It has been too great a weight for me to carry. Please, all of you care for Sienna. I am so sorry for not physically remaining in your lives. I'm with Autumn, End quote. So as soon as Lisa Pellegrini saw the letter, she said, quote, holy shit, now I know he did it. There's case law on it, consciousness of guilt, End quote. The Emmy changed the manner of death to homicide. And the team spent days working on an affidavit of probable cause to arrest Bob. On July 24th, the arrest warrant was signed. Bob was still at his sister's house in St. Augustine. So the prosecution team and the detectives let the law enforcement down there know that they're going to come and get him. So the next day, the prosecution team, the detectives, with Bill and Lois because they have an order to have CeCe stay with them. All of these law enforcement agents converge on Diane's house. Diane, needless to say, was kind of disturbed, and she called her attorneys. Bob wasn't there. He was on his way back to Pittsburgh. So after a bunch of phone calls and drama, Sienna was happily given to her grandparents, and Lisa calls... The defense attorney, Diffenderfer, and she gets, she's all pissed off. One thing you don't want to do is piss off Lisa Pellegrini. And she said, where is he? And he goes, he's on his way to Pittsburgh. When he gets here, he'll turn himself in. And Lisa said, quote, he doesn't get to dictate. Now he's a fugitive. Don't play this game with me. Tell him to pull over and tell us what mile marker he's at and we'll come get him, end quote. So she puts out a national bolo, you know, be on the lookout for Bob. And at 5.52 p.m., the West Virginia State Police received this. So they're like, okay, we're going to set up a trap for him. They had one car sitting at the median and their license plate technology alerted them because they, in the bolo was his license plate number. It alerted them that he just went through a toll booth in Beckley. So a bunch of troopers stop traffic and block him in. Bob is panicking and having a fit. I would have liked to see this. He calls Diffenderfer and he goes, quote, there's police all around me. Oh my God, Bill, there's a bunch of them, End quote. And Diffenderfer goes, just pull over. So he was taken into custody and held four nights until he had an extradition hearing at which he waived extradition and he was taken back to Pittsburgh. He was booked into the Allegheny County Jail on one count of criminal homicide. I have the affidavit here, and I'll read you select parts of it because it said what the prosecution thought the motive was. Quote, Investigators have discovered evidence that shows within weeks of the victim's death, Ferrante confronted the victim three times as to whether she was having an affair. Evidence has been uncovered that reflects that the victim intended to have a conversation with Ferrante and that Ferrante would, quote, not like the discussion. The document, which identified the witnesses by number instead of name, Included the statements from Tom McElrath about his conversations with Autumn and her plans to leave her husband, as well as statements from Farkas, her initial treating physician. He was identified as witness number one. Witness number one, who was present at Presbyterian Hospital, reported that Ferrante's reaction upon seeing the victim on the exam table seemed fake and like, quote, bad acting. Witness number one said that in his 10 years of experience in the medical field, he has never seen anyone act the way Ferrante did. He reported that Ferrante began speaking about the victim in the past tense while the doctors were still actively treating her. Witness number three, who was present in the hospital that night, reported that Ferrante began asking about whether an autopsy should be performed before the victim was pronounced deceased. Witness number three reported that Ferrante said he did not believe an autopsy would help because any toxins in her blood would have been washed out. Witness number three found it strange that Ferrante would be talking about toxins being washed out of the victim's blood. And, quote, I'm going to interject. Remember, this is when Autumn was still alive. This was way before her blood had tested positive for cyanide. Nobody knows about the cyanide yet, yet here's Bob sitting here talking about toxins. Uh, Red flag, anybody? And based on that information, the prosecution was able to get an arrest warrant for Bob, mainly based on his shady behavior in the hospital. Bob's attorney, Bill Diffenderfer, said that this case made him nervous because he'd never had a case with so much medicine and chemistry or so many expert witnesses. He spent more time visiting Bob in the jail than he'd spent with any other defendant. And what was going on during all those visits was pretty much Bob was teaching his attorney science. In the meantime, the the prosecutors were doing their part to learn about cyanide poisoning. They researched cases, they called other prosecutors, and medical examiners. So now we're going to learn a little bit about cyanide and cyanide poisoning so that you can have a basic understanding of what happened to autumn. Potassium cyanide, abbreviated KCN, is a colorless crystalline salt. It looks like sugar. It's used in gold mining and electroplating And it's found naturally in foods like almonds, lima beans, and spinach. Also in some medicines like selexa and Tagamet. High exposure causes headache, confusion, dizziness, anxiety, pounding of the heart, and eventually unconsciousness and death. Symptoms can appear from several seconds to minutes after exposure and A person can have difficulty breathing, which is called respiratory distress, seizures, loss of consciousness, cardiac arrest, all of which Autumn displayed that night. Cyanide poisoning is hard to diagnose. Its symptoms are similar to those of carbon monoxide poisoning, which is, needless to say, a lot more common. And the appearance of cherry red blood may be the only clue. This is caused by the excess oxygen in the blood. Cyanide has a short half-life, meaning that a tox screen needs to be done fast if you're going to catch it in the blood. There is an antidote for it if it's caught in time. Poison as a murder weapon is pretty popular in those mystery dinner theaters and Agatha Christie books, but very rare in real life. In the United States, one half of 1% of murders are from poison, and that includes all poison. If you were going to say cyanide, that would be even a smaller part of that. The most famous case is the 1982 mass poisoning of Tylenol, and the mortality rate from cyanide is 95%. Cyanide has historically been a popular weapon with poisoners because it is so fatal. It's hard to diagnose and it's hard to recover from. But fortunately, it's also very hard for the average person to get their hands on. Bob, working as a research scientist in a lab, could probably get his hands on pretty much any chemical that he wanted. So the prosecution... And the police interview Dr. Jin Ho Kim, who is Bob's research associate. And he said that he recalled, quote, something odd that occurred between March and April of that year. Bob asked him to order. Remember that 3NP stuff we talked about earlier? Well, Bob asked him to order 3NP three times during this period of time saying that he needed a new bottle because what they had had lost its potency. Bob said that he loaned 3NP to Pitt neurosurgery professor Dr. Dixon, but when questioned, Dr. Dixon told the prosecution that, bullshit, he had never asked for or received any 3NP from Bob. Dr. Kim, who saw Autumn on the day she collapsed, noted that she looked sick, and he said he asked her if she was okay. So this never comes up again. It was just a thought in their head. But the prosecutors wondered if Bob had possibly been dosing Autumn with 3NP, either to kill her or make her look sick, but it wasn't working, so then he moved on to cyanide because it would be easier to pull off a murder if people recalled her looking and acting sick up until the time she died and there's no lab not even the FBI that has a test that can detect this 3NP one of the things taken from Bob's office was a small safe so the prosecution opened it so the prosecution opened it in May and found a MacBook, you know, a laptop, and Lisa Pellegrini would call this the mother load. I mentioned how much Bob loved Googling and that this will be his downfall. Well, here, in chronological order, are the suspicious things that he Googled and the websites he visited, and during the trial, the prosecution had a chart. They had this up on like a I don't know if it was a printed chart or one of those, um, what do you call it, projector things. But they had this chart up for the joy to see. And just, I don't know about you, but just by looking at the dates on this and what he googled, it's mighty damn fishy. This starts in 2013. On January 1st, he googled definition of malice aforethought. What it means is the intention to kill or harm somebody. On January 8th, he googled cyanide poisoning causes symptoms and treatments. Also the same day, he googled or he landed at a page called Illinois man killed by cyanide poisoning after striking it rich in lottery. On January 31st, he was really busy. He googled human toxicity 3NP, human toxicity, 3NP, cardiomyopathy, toxic dose human 3NP, cardiomyopathy, and toxic dose human 3NP. Now, remember, mid-February was when Autumn went to San Francisco for that conference. February 15th, he Googles, Suicide's Golden Gate Bridge. February 18th, Divorce Pittsburgh, PA. February 19th was the absolutely ridiculous and laughable. Does increased vaginal size suggest wife is having sex with another. February 23rd, he looked up McElrath Thomas Frederick. That's the doctor friend of Autumn who he thought there was something going on with. April 14th, he googled potential cyanide neuroscience project. April 17th. This is the night that autumn's going to collapse. But before that, during the day, he googled hospitals near Nemecolon. So what Nemecolon is, it's a luxury resort area a little bit south of Pittsburgh. And I did read something that said that they were going to go there for a nice weekend, like a getaway. So apparently he wanted to know about the hospitals. Near this resort in case, I guess, something happened to his wife. Okay, so at this point, Autumn is in the hospital fighting for her life. And on April 22nd, he looks up medical examiner toxicology report. And then, how would you test for potassium cyanide? Then, how would a coroner detect when someone is killed by cyanide? April 23rd. Acute cardiopulmonary failure metabolic acidosis cause. April 25th, this is a big one, I think. Would ECMO or dialysis remove traces of toxins or poisons? The answer, by the way, is yes. On the 26th, he googled creatine and cyanide. And the last one, which is very suspicious, was on May 1st. He looked up, remove items from your Google web history. And I don't think anybody looks that up unless they're trying to get rid of something. And second of all, how dumb is he? He has an MD and a PhD. And I just have a PhD. So I'm not as accomplished as him. But even I know that you can never really delete something that no matter how how hard you try, your search history can always be found, can always be found. This is just a funny little anecdote here. In August, Lisa Pellegrini, Kevin Chernowski, who was member of the prosecution, and the two detectives, McGee and Provident, all drive to Boston to interview Autumn and Bob's colleagues. And on the way back, the song Bad Moon Rising by Credence clearwater Revival Comes on the Radio, and there's a line that goes, there's a bad moon on the rise. So they were singing to this song, and somebody got the idea to change the verse. So they all started singing, Bob Ferrante's going to get life. The trial started October twenty third, 2014, with Judge Jeffrey Manning, a judge I knew quite well work with on many occasions, I would say was a very hard but fair and, and um, just generally a good judge. I won't bore you with all the details of the trial, but I'll just give you a few highlights. In her opening statement, Lisa Pellegrini said, quote, This defendant loves his computers. Love, loves, loves his computers. He Googles everything You are going to hear in January of 2013, he starts Googling cyanide poisoning. Then he starts Googling an individual. That's Dr. McElrath, his background, the person he is jealous of. And I I like this quote, especially. All along, this defendant, the evidence will show, thinks he is smarter than everybody. So what the issue came down to, what the drawers had to decide pretty much was, did Autumn die from cyanide or from something else? The defense tried to plant the seed in people that Autumn had been suffering from migraines and fainting spells. So if she did happen to just one day drop over dead, which she did, it wouldn't be so odd because she had been acting sick. Bob claimed that he ordered the cyanide because he had just started a research project involving turning the skin cells of ALS patients into stem cells, then treating them with a toxin, which, as you can guess, would be cyanide. However, his partner, Dr. Kim, testified that they had no new projects involving cyanide planned. Dr. Kim also said that he put the cyanide under his workbench, but the next time he saw it, it had mysteriously walked itself into the refrigerator, unsealed itself, and 8.3 grams were missing. He then told the lab administrators who told the pit police. Another thing that the defense tried to argue was Quest Lab. Remember, that's the lab I mentioned earlier. They came up with two different levels of cyanide. First, it was 3.4. Then it was 2.2. So in a way, you can say that their defense was based around the idea that Quest Lab fucked up. They really threw Quest under the bus. They had a dude from Quest testify, and Quest even brought their own attorney As the prosecution pointed out, however, whether it's 3.4 or 2.2, it doesn't matter. There shouldn't be any cyanide in her system, and either level would have killed her. Then Detective Weibel of the DA's office read those suicide letters that I told you about. Remember that uh, they put together from the shredded paper, and while these were being read, Bob clasped his hands under his chin, and cried quietly. So this trial pretty much came down to a battle of the experts. The prosecution expert was Dr. Christopher Holsteg from the University of Virginia, who had written a chapter on cyanide in a toxicology book. He played an 85-second animation to the jury to demonstrate what cyanide did to the body, and he said, quote, it is the inability of being able to utilize oxygen, end quote. Remember when I told Yins about the high level of oxygen in Autumn's blood, and they couldn't figure out what was causing that? That's what was causing that. The cyanide basically makes your cells, all the cells in your body, unable to utilize oxygen. So it doesn't have anywhere to go. And all it does is basically float around in your body, looking for somewhere to go. So death from cyanide is pretty much like suffocation. It sounds like a horrible way to die. The defense tried to counter with their experts, and their star witness was Dr. Cyril Wecht. You may have heard of him. He's written several books. He was the county coroner of Allegheny County for a very long time. He said that he believed that Autumn's cause of death was undetermined. Then Bob testified, which is pretty unusual. Usually, you don't see defendants take the stand unless they're either A, innocent, or B, really cocky. In this case, it was B. This is what he said about the night that Autumn came home and collapsed. And listen carefully. He said he was upstairs with Sienna when he heard Autumn come in. And he didn't hear her say hello, so he went downstairs. He said, quote, I was there in the kitchen and said, hi, hon, love you. She gave me a peck on the cheek and fell to the floor on her knees. She said, I feel like this happened the last time I was in church. I kept saying to her, "Hun, are you okay? She kept moving her hand this way as if I'm fine, I'm fine. That is typical of my wife. She is very stoic. I kept asking her that and asking her that. She fell to her side. Now she was completely supine on the floor near the stove. I recognize this is not good and called 911, end quote. Did you notice anything different in that version of events than the versions he'd given previously? Well, so did the jury. And the one thing he said, he claims that he saw her when she got home and he said, Hi, hon, love you. And... (laughs) After that, I have written WTF. Who says that? Like, I can see um, when you're leaving, you know, you're like, bye, I love you. But who says when you're greeting somebody when they come home? Hi, I love you. But I mean, it doesn't make him guilty of anything. It's just really weird. But I think as we've already established, Bob is a very weird dude. I have this little odd exchange between Bob and his attorney. And it's pretty innocent on the the face of it. But I just want you to hear the words he uses. Because I'm trying to make a point. He's on the stand and his attorney, Bill Diffenderfer, said, quote, Would a very talented and upcoming doctor describe Autumn? End quote. Bob says, my wife? And Diffenderfer says, yes. First of all, how many other Autumns could he be talking about? Like, duh. And throughout the trial and just other instances in general, Bob has a habit of referring to Autumn as my wife instead of her name. And you may think that's harmless. That doesn't mean anything. I couldn't find any like actual articles or research or anything to quote from. So I'll have to go off my own memory. But see, I had to, uh, when I worked for the probation office, I had to go to different trainings about different things. And one of the most fascinating that I went to was about treating sex offenders. And it was put on by a man and a woman. The woman worked directly with the sex offenders. So she told us about what she did. The guy worked with men who were domestic abusers, and he told us, and it just stuck with me, it stuck in my head, he said, whenever we get into a circle and talk about our problems, I say rule number one is to these domestic abusers, he said, you are not allowed to use the phrase, my wife, you must call her by her first name, and he said the reason for that was that Constantly referring to somebody as my wife or my husband is like a ownership thing. It's like treating them as a, or referring to them as a possession rather than a human being. And I noticed throughout my research that Bob says my wife an awful lot. He claimed that in early 2013, he found, quote, flirtatious emails between Autumn, and Tom McElrath, and I have never seen those emails. I doubt that they're flirtatious, but I didn't get the chance to see what Bob considered flirtatious. And of course, he had no idea what happened to the 8.3 grams of cyanide from the bottle. The trial lasted for 10 days. The jury found him guilty, and I have a couple news clips. Some of the jurors talked to reporters. So here's a little bit of insight into what swayed the jury.
3: I think it will give me closure.
1: Helen Ewing was the next to last juror to find Robert Ferrante guilty of homicide by cyanide in the murder of his wife, Dr. Autumn Klein. She didn't have to be here for his sentencing to life, but she came hoping she might hear Ferrante answer what led him to poison and kill the mother of his child.
3: I would love any, any type of explanation. Um, I didn't expect that he would say that, but for me, that's still something I struggle with. I, I don't understand why uh, or how he could do it. For the
1: first time, the juror got to meet and talk with Lois and Bill Klein, the parents of the victim.
3: To see um, you know how they felt about her and what she was like as a kid um, you know, made it, made it more impactful that we were able to make that decision.
1: Helen Ewing says it took her 15 hours to decide Robert Ferrante is guilty.
3: I wanted to be positive about it. I didn't want to take away um, this little girl's other parents.
1: But she feels the weight of the evidence is clear, even if, for her, the motive is not.
3: But I still don't understand why he did it. I'm still am not any closer to answering that question. I don't think I can.
1: Good evening. It took the jury 15 hours to convict pit researcher Robert Ferrante of first-degree murder, and tonight... Ferrante is looking at life in prison.
3: His attorney had tried to convince jurors Ferrante
1: had nothing to do with the cyanide poisoning death of his wife, but the jury rejected those claims. Tonight we're hearing from those jurors and other key figures in the case. We have live team coverage from the courthouse tonight. We begin with Harold Hayes. He's been on this case since the beginning.
2: Harold. Well, not long after they convicted Robert Ferrante of first degree murder, three jurors agreed to talk about their experience. Some wanted to give their names, didn't, but they all did. They believe that that first blood test, the one that showed a lethal level of cyanide, was good enough for them. I feel that we did justice. Mm-hmm. I hope we did justice for them. thoughts and prayers go out to our family and friends. That is the message to the family of Adam Klein from jurors number six and seven. After their first-degree murder conviction for Robert Ferrante, they reached their verdict approaching the 16th hour of deliberations. It was announced by juror number seven, the foreman a store manager with an MBA. What helped sway him? Among other things, his perception that Ferranti wasn't consistent in his story about the night she collapsed. When Dr. Ferrante made the statement, you know, num- number of different statements where he was in the house, when Autumn Klein came into the house, that's what really, you know, didn't really make sense to me. Uh, so that's what, that's one of the reasons, you know, why I reached the verdict of guilty. The jurors listened a second time to the 911 call looking for more clues and said tonight that evidence, including the groans of the victim, were hard to listen to. To hear the moaning and groaning and someone helpless, and then to come for the verdict of guilty and realize what was happening in that moment is it, very, very heart-wrenching and to understand anybody.
3: I empathize with the fact that I, it would have been incredibly difficult for me to, to make that decision to send someone uh, to life in prison. I had to be absolutely certain, um, and that took me an incredibly long time. Um, In the end, for me, it was very hard for me to accept and to believe that he could have done it. But I felt that the facts were clear, and I I couldn't argue with them.
0: On February 4th, 2015, Bob was sentenced to life without parole, and he had nothing to say for himself. Today, he resides in SCI Haltzdale, which is like the middle of Pennsylvania, and he's 73 years old. He keeps himself busy in prison teaching inmates GED and financial responsibility skills. He exchanges letters with his family, and letters to and from his daughter, Sienna, have drawings on them. He said that one thing he wished he'd done different was he wished he'd taken Autumn's feigning spells more seriously. So to the bitter end, denying guilt. Last July 2022, he lost his last remaining appeal. So he will sit there and rot in SCI Houtstown. The Kleins filed a wrongful death suit against Bob for $2.5 million to pay for Sienna's needs and their home. But Autumn collapsed and sold just before he was sentenced. Dr. Roos, who had met Autumn at Massachusetts General Hospital, said about her, quote, she was one of the most loving, gentle, kind human beings I've known in my lifetime. She had an incredible sense of what she wanted in life. She's all of us who have families and careers and what our priorities are, end quote. She said Autumn's loss will affect whole generations of women, could have been her patients. A former patient set up a Facebook page, and if you want to look at it or write it down, it's called In Memory of Dr. Autumn Klein." Her high school is raising money to build a lab in her name, and there's also a fellowship in her name through UPMC. And I will write the address for that down on the show notes. Her cousin Sharon said, quote, Autumn had this insatiable thirst for getting to know people and their stories. I lost my other half, but sometimes I feel more lost for her patience. I feel that so deeply, End quote. Autumn's parents have since died and joined her, and Sienna is now 16. I have no idea where she lives, but... I hope she's doing okay. So, psychology. What do you think the motive here was? It's been suggested that Bob was very controlling. We saw instances about him referring to Autumn as my wife. Jealousy. Remember, he used to call her on her way home from work and say, where are you? And she'd be irritated. According to the U.S. Justice Department, the most dangerous time for a spouse in an abusive relationship is when you either leave or plan to leave. And statistics show that the majority of domestic assaults occur after the couple separates. Wendy Mahoney, executive director for the Mississippi Coalition Against Domestic Violence, says, quote, domestic violence is all about power and control. And when a woman leaves, a man has lost his his power and control, end quote. And I think that fits pretty exactly in this situation. Autumn is 41, so 23. Bob would have been in his early 60s. He's getting up there in age. Autumn is so young and vibrant, and her star was just starting to rise in her career. I think that the jealousy in this, was he was jealous of her, that she was a threat to him and his ego, mainly. I think that his ego was so big that he couldn't handle the thought of his wife outshining him. That's my own personal opinion. This case is for Autumn, and Autumn, it's so sad that your piece of shit husband found it necessary to steal your light from all of us that are still here. Next week, I have a request. I'll warn you, I'll, I'll, of course, give another trigger warning next week, but but it's a child killer, and his victims were little kids, so it might not be everybody's Thing that they want to listen to. Okay, I will see you next week. Class dismissed.